0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 29, Deuteronomy chapter 22, continued. We began Deuteronomy chapter 22 last week, and we're going to continue with it tonight. And it's a pretty technical lesson. But you know... It all works together to help us understand God's laws and commandments, and, and it shows us how to go about righteous living. And this is very important. The first part of the chapter addressed a series of laws on what the Apostle James calls true religion, right? Meaning, the proper spiritual attitude that a disciple of the God of Israel employs when we're observing God's commands and His laws. It's also a call to holiness and and for our behavior to exhibit the spirit of the law rather than to mechanically perform it by the letter. All right. Now, the, the key to always remember in our discussions of the Torah and the law, is that it's only for those who are already redeemed. It's not for anybody else. The Torah and the law were given to Israel after their redemption. It was never a means of their redemption. They didn't go to Mount Sinai and get redeemed. A whole bunch of redeemed people went up to Mount Sinai after they were redeemed, and then received the word of God. That redemption in Egypt was by grace. They didn't do anything for it. It's the same way we still receive grace today. Same way. Thus following the law code of the Torah is not how redemption was or is achieved. It is simply the proper response that's expected by God as a result of the redemption that He's given to us by grace as a free gift, first to Israel down in Egypt and then later to all who trust in Messiah. Now because cultures change and evolve over time, it's the principles of these commandments that we must apprehend and then reapply to our present state. It's not always easy to determine just how to do that. And so reasonable debate and disagreements to be expected. But what is not debatable is that these laws and commands remain just as Yeshua said they did in his Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5. Now we ended our last lesson by discussing the concept of illicit mixtures, which is defined as the creation of unlawful unions between things that a worshiper of Yehovah ought not to do. Okay? From a biblical viewpoint, the definition of adultery is it's an illicit mixture. Okay. And, and an unlawful union. Okay, in, in other words, while we think of adultery as a as a, perhaps a crime that revolves around sexual issues, in fact, even in the Webster's dictionary, it makes it clear that to adulterate something is to mix the pure with the impure, okay, or the inferior with the superior, right. and, and it doesn't matter what the material is. In the Lord's eyes, adultery means to mix the holy with the unholy, the clean with the unclean, the righteous with the unrighteous. The illustrations that were given to us last week were transvestism, men disguising themselves as women, and vice versa. Planting two different kinds of seeds together. Mixing two different types of thread, specifically linen and wool, to form a cloth for a garment. And the yoking of two different kinds of and sizes of animals together to a plow. Let's reread a portion of Deuteronomy 22 to set the stage for our lesson tonight. So open your Bibles to uh, page, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 221. We're going to start reading at Deuteronomy 22, verse 12. you are to make for yourself twisted cords on the four corners of the garment that you wrap around yourself. If a man marries a woman, has sexual relations with her, and then having come to dislike her, brings false charges against her and defames her character by saying, I married this woman, but when I had intercourse with her, I did not find evidence that she was a virgin. Then the girl's father and mother are to take the evidence of the girl's virginity to the leaders of the town at the gate, and the girl's father will say to the leaders, I let my daughter marry this man. But he hates her. So he's brought false charges that he didn't find any evidence of her virginity, yet here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and then they will lay the cloth before the town leaders. The leaders of that town are to take that man and punish him and fine him two and a half pounds of silver shekels, which they will give to the girl's father, because he has publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. She will remain his wife, and he's forbidden from divorcing her as long as he lives. But if the charge is substantiated that evidence for the girl's virginity could not be found, then they are are to lead the girl to the door of her father's house, and the men of her town will stone her to death, because she has committed in Israel the disgraceful act of being a prostitute while still in her father's house. In this way, he will put an end to such wickedness among you. If a man is found sleeping with a woman who has a husband, both of them must die. The man who went to bed with the woman and the woman too. In this way you will expel this kind of wickedness from Israel. If a girl who is a virgin is engaged to a man and another man comes upon her in the town and has sexual relations with her, you are to bring them both out to the gate of the city and stone them to death. The girl because she didn't cry out for help there in the city. And the man because he has humiliated his neighbor's wife. In this way you will put an end to such wickedness among you. But if the man comes upon the engaged girl out in the countryside, and the man grabs her and has relations with her, then only the man who had, who had intercourse with her is to die. You will do nothing to the girl because she's done nothing to deserve death. The situation's like the case of the man who attacks his neighbor and kills him. For he found her in the countryside, and the engaged girl cried out. But there was no one to save her. If a man comes upon a girl who is a virgin but who is not engaged and he grabs her and has relations with her, then they are caught in the act. Then the man who had intercourse with her must give to the girl's father one and one quarter pounds of silver shekels. She will become his wife because he humiliated her. He may not divorce her as long as he lives. I ended the last lesson by pointing out that Jewish and Christian scholars and teachers and leaders have tried... All manner of reason to explain the why behind the Lord choosing the animals and the materials and the actions that he did and then dividing them into the categories of clean and unclean, lawful and unlawful, acceptable and unacceptable. And in all the studies I've ever done on this matter, I have not found one explanation of God's supposed rationale for his choices or some kind of logical, rational system within those choices that stands up to close scrutiny. Exactly why a sheep is okay to sacrifice and to eat, but a pig isn't, just isn't clear. Why an animal with a cloven hoof or that chews the cud is okay, but one that doesn't, doesn't compute. Why? Why a turtle dove is okay to sacrifice, but a chicken isn't? Doesn't seem to fit any discernible model. Why are frogs off limits? Why is sex out of wedlock prohibited? Last week I asked the question, does weaving together linen and wool supernaturally create a cloth that is evil? Does planting corn and cucumbers next to one another make them both inedible? My conclusion on the matter is that while these laws and commands most certainly are meant to be taken serious, seriously, as is, the much larger issue is that these are all illustrations of God's divine principles. He has created things in a certain order, and each for a different purpose. And to adulterate this order and his purposes is wrong. It is sin. It should be avoided. And while the search for why is certainly an understandable endeavor. It's completely secondary to our actually observing, if if not the literal law, certainly the clear principle that it demonstrates. As the great Hebrew sage Rashi said, we don't have to know why the command is as it is in order to obey it. Now let me make some connections, and in doing so point out why we probably need to adopt Rashi's attitude towards obeying God's commandments. First, and the laws that prohibit the wearing a garment of mixed wool and linen. It's interesting that this only applies to certain individuals in the Israeli community, not all. Priests who were on duty were required to wear certain items of clothing made from a mixture of wool and linen. It was only lay people, non-priests, who couldn't wear that sort of clothing. Further, there is no law against merely the weaving together of linen and wool. It's only the wearing of it that presents the problem. Theoretically, one could make a grain sack or even a tent out of such mixed fabric. Therefore, if it were that spontaneous evil erupted by mixing linen and wool together, there is no way that the Lord would have compelled his own set-apart servants, priests, to wear certain items of it. Now interestingly, there is an item to be worn by all Hebrews that did consist of this otherwise outlawed mixture of wool and linen, tzitzi, tassels. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 22 makes it a law for Hebrews to wear these tassels. When we go back to Numbers 15, and then we study the most ancient works of the sages, we find out just how these tassels were to be constructed. They were to be made out of linen threads with one wool thread, a blue one, that was added. So traditional tzitzit are made out of a mixture of wool and linen that for other uses and purposes is prohibited for the laymen of Israel. By the way, as one might expect, not all sects of Judaism totally agree on this. Now the Hebrew word For cloth, made out of linen wool, is shanets. Shanets. Shanets is usually translated as mixed material, and that's not a bad translation. But it's key to remember that these laws of illicit mixing are all about the Seventh Commandment. That's their foundation. The Seventh Commandment is at the heart of all these laws about illicit mixture. And what's that commandment? It prohibits adultery. Thus, we're going to find that while shanetz most literally may mean mixed material, in fact, the common usage and sense of that term in the biblical era carried a much different message. Shanetz is also a Hebrew idiom for prostitution. More specifically, in the Bible era, a prostitute wore Shaunette's clothing made of mixed material. Now, don't let that confuse you, but instead enlighten, because, you know, almost, every, well, virtually every language does the same thing with its words. It says one thing, but it, at times, A certain string of words used in a particular circumstance under a, within a certain context means something else. We're we're just so immersed into our own language and culture with its own idioms that we, we use them unconsciously. And, And we don't even see them for what they are. Let me give you a, for instance, and it's even here in Deuteronomy. In English, we'll hear of a nice juicy rumor like, I hear your friend Steve is sleeping with that girl, Connie. Now, of course, we all know what's being said, is that they're having sexual relations, but that's not what the words say, is it? If a thousand years from now, somebody stumbled upon that statement, they'd wonder what the big deal was, that Steve and Connie had gone to sleep near each other. Everybody has to sleep. Since when's sleeping a bad thing? What possible harm ever could be in sleeping next to each other. Not even, you know, not even a hundred years ago. In Americas and elsewhere, it was completely common for men and women, unmarried, in some cases barely acquaintances, to sleep several to a bed. I said sleep. It was no different that a bunch of people sleeping in sleeping bags all crowded together around a campfire. That's how they saw it. Okay. See, it's just that in our modern culture, the literal words sleeping together don't mean what they say. They indicate something else entirely that people outside of our culture probably wouldn't catch. And even inside our own culture, a mere century ago, it meant something else entirely. It's the same idea with this Hebrew term, shanets, mixed material. The implication of the word was thoroughly understood among the ancient Hebrews. Literally what this law in verse 11 says is, You shall not wear Shonet's wool and linen together. That's what it says. Simple enough. Just don't wear a mixture of wool and linen, for whatever God's reason is for this. But that's not precisely what it meant. What it meant to the Israelites of the Bible era is, you shall not wear the clothes of a prostitute, which are wool and linen mixed together. A prostitute in ancient times wore the loveliest clothes, expensive perfumes, because it was that which helped her to entice her male, her stinky male customers. (laughs) (laughs) The finest cloth in that era was often a mixture of wool and linen. The wealthy pagans routinely wore a cloth of that mixture. So here is a direct understanding among the ancient Hebrews that the mixing of wool and linen for use as a garment among lay people was symbolic of prostitution. Because that's actually what prostitutes of that era generally wore. But it was also symbolic of what prostitution essentially is in a much deeper sense. Prostitution is by definition a form of adultery. Adultery is effectively an unauthorized union. An unauthorized union is an illicit mixture and therefore any illicit mixture is simply an act of adultery before the Lord. Do you see this? And that, my friends, is a very important biblical principle for us to grasp as we read the words of the Holy Scriptures. So what we see is that while a mixture of um, wool and linen is usually thought of as being a cloth that God completely prohibits, and we make the wrong assumption that it is inherently evil to do it, that is simply not true to the words and commands of Torah. The scriptures make it clear that God's priests can and must wear some garments made of linen and wool. We're going to, matter of fact, you find that in Exodus 28, to be specific. In addition, some items of priests' clothing are to be wool only, other items linen only. And the example of the zitzit shows us that even lay people were allowed to wear something made out of mixed material, even though I I think we could say that a zitzit can't be classified as a garment. So what we see is that clean and unclean unions, acceptable and unacceptable mixtures, have not only to do with what the materials of the mixture are, but the circumstance surrounding it and even who's involved. Let me be clear. This does not give us license to simply apply circumstance willy-nilly in order to rationalize our behavior. The Torah gives us a great deal of information so that we can understand the purpose and the spirit behind these laws, which is why it doesn't bother me one bit to go through these verses that are so technical and talk about them. Many Orthodox Jews today, for instance, they don't even include the blue linen thread, uh, blue uh, wool thread all right, inside there. They say it's because they're not sure of exactly what the color of blue ought to be. That's right. They're not sure, so they say they're just going to leave it out. All right. Yet here we see in Deuteronomy that while the color of the woolen thread does play a role, the far bigger issue is the mixing of the wool and linen together. That's the issue. So in my mind, to to, to leave out. One or the other, because the exact shade of blue is uncertain, misses the whole purpose and spirit of the law of Zitzit. Folks, this is where Jews and Christians can get so far off beam so fast. Jews can go astray by setting aside Scripture in favor of tradition that is primarily the commentary and rulings of rabbis and Jewish religious authorities. Christians can get way off beam by setting aside the scripture or simply the entire Old Testament in favor of doctrines and denominational customs set down by our religious leadership. We get so focused on doing good things that we forget the love and mercy with which we're expected to salt everything that we attempt. On the other hand, we get so focused on love and mercy that we declare everyone and everything good so that we can be peaceful. All right? And we wind up putting obedience to God's laws and principles on the shelf. Now I have a question for those of you who, like me, consider the New Testament admonition that we as believers in Messiah our priests of the Lord, to be literally true. And that God sees us as his set-apart servants for this era. As his believers, we're to be the teachers of the word, but we're also to be those who observe the word. That's the harder part, isn't it? Believe me, it's a lot easier to teach you this than it is to live it out. We're also to give the Lord our sacrifices, which basically are our wills. And we're to give Him a sacrifice of praise with our lips. Further, we're to consider ourselves a sort of lesser priests working for and taking our direction from our high priest, Yeshua. We're to anoint with oil. We're to pray for the needs of others. All things that prior to Yeshua were reserved as a function of the priesthood of Israel as ordained by God. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Since priests were not only allowed, but also ordered, to wear certain articles of clothing that had a mixture of shanets, linen and wool together, should we shun wearing it as many of the Jewish Orthodox community do? Some believers today strongly believe that to wear a mixture of linen and wool garments is wrong. Those who typically scoff at the idea, though, almost unanimously say that the reason we don't have to is because the law is dead and gone, so we don't have to observe it. I think that those at both ends of this spectrum need to reconsider. As a member of God's royal priesthood, I am fully authorized by Torah and by the author of Torah, Yeshua our Messiah, to wear a mixture of wool and linen. I recognize that I'm far more of a spiritual priest of God than I am an earthly priest in the sense that as far as I know, I'm not a physical descendant of Jacob. Let alone Aaron, who formed the Israelite priesthood. Yet I and you do have earthly duties. And my actions and attitude and spirit ought to at all times reflect God's view that I am His servant. I am His priest. I am set apart only for Him. And since I am made holy and set apart for Him, that means that what I join myself to, what I mix myself with, Who and what I come into union with. This has to be very carefully considered. I could give you countless examples of this in the New Testament. What I am hoping is, is that as we continue to discuss human sexuality, illicit mixtures and such, that you will see that the principles for all of this are laid down in the Torah and that is where we're going to gain our greatest understanding of illegal and legal unions 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is almost exclusively about proper versus improper mixtures as but one tiny example listen to paul pleading in 1 Corinthians 6:16 6, don't you know that a man who joins himself to a prostitute becomes physically one with her For the Tanakh says the two become one flesh. Here he gives the prohibition against an unlawful union between a person who has been made holy and clean with a person who is not holy and clean. Then in the very next verse he gives his rationale for this view in the positive form. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. See how it follows? In other words, as with illicit mixtures, the concept is that a person who is set apart for God has no business coming into unions with those things or with those people who are not to do so is an unauthorized mixture. To do so is essentially to adulterate what is pure. We not only adulterate the laws of God when we do that, but we also adulterate our personal relationship with God. I know that this is really tough. This is tough to hear. But you know what's not my rules. This is just what the scripture says. And with all my being, I believe that what I'm telling you is fully the context and fully what's being communicated to us. Well, we've lightly touched on the human sexuality issues that I told you last week with challenges, but now it's really going to start to heat up. Okay, Beginning in verse 13 are a few examples of relationships or, or better unions between men and women, some of which are right, some of which are wrong, it affects everybody involved, no matter which way you go. The first case is of a man who falsely accuses a woman of being unchaste prior to their being married. Okay. To put it more directly, a husband marries a woman and decides to accuse her of having had sexual relations with another man prior to their engagement. Now in our society, That's considered virtually normal. Generally speaking, it's no reason for concern by the bridegroom anymore. In fact, a girl who has not had relations prior to engagement today is often seen as ignorant, prudish, and a little bit backward. Isn't that true? She's made fun of, scorned by her friends, considered strange and abnormal. And so a girl in our time like this might actually keep her virginity a secret so she's not embarrassed. Nothing could be more opposite of God's commands, of the biblical reality, and what was expected in early Israelite society. So this first example is fascinating. A man marries a woman and decides he doesn't want her anymore. And when it says in verse 13 that he hates her, that's what it's getting at. Hate doesn't mean that he's developed this intense emotional dislike for her. It means that he rejects her for whatever reason. Since the law has only the narrowest of reasons for permitting divorce, and apparently the husband doesn't have one of those reasons to use, he makes up a false accusation against her. And if this accusation that he made were actually true, which in this first case it's not, it indeed does constitute a legal reason for him to get rid of his wife. And the husband's reason for wanting a divorce is, he says, that he's discovered that this woman wasn't a virgin when he married her. He defames her. He announces publicly his complaint against her. And of course, this causes an enormous loss of honor for his wife, her family, and especially for this girl's father. So a standard cultural solution to the problem unwinds before us to counter these charges. The mother and father are to bring proof of the girl's virginity to those who are empowered to judge the matter. The city's elders. Now this verse speaks of the elders being located at the gate. I've mentioned a few times that court was usually held next to the main entry gates of a city, if, if it was a walled city. And in that era, uh, the area next to the gates was basically where the town's main courtyard was located. It was where businessmen would congregate. Strangers would be stopped and questioned by law enforcement. Marriage ceremonies would occur there. The local court met there. The idea was that all these things were being publicly witnessed and everybody knew this was where to go. The father now speaks and he says, this dastardly man that he gave his daughter to has rejected her for no good reason and he's made up false charges of fornication in order to divorce her. However, indeed, the father and the mother do have the required evidence to prove this girl's virginity prior to their betrothal. And the required evidence is called the marriage cloth or marriage garment or in some other term referring to a piece of cloth that had a very important role in the marriage process of that era. Now, it's difficult to overstate the seriousness of this matter. A girl has been, who's been found to have had relations prior to her betrothal, she can be stoned to death for this. The father's disgraced at such a horrible act by his daughter because it was his job to protect her, to supervise her, until he turned the authority of her over to another man, her husband the shame is beyond enormous and it's going to affect the family for generations. Further, because it was customary for a substantial monetary price to be paid by the suitor to the girl's father as a bride price, the father would have to give the money back. In most cases, this could be a pretty significant setback on that family's finances. The husband certainly wanted his money back because he'd need it for another bride. Besides, according to his claim, he'd been defrauded. So before we go any further, let's define a couple of terms. First, we find the term virgin is used often in the Bible. In the modern era, this term refers to a woman who's never had relations with a man. In the Bible, it meant primarily that the girl had never been married. Of course, what is part and parcel of a girl having never been married is that A, she'd never had sexual relations, and B, she was still living at home under her father's authority. Because girls usually married by around the age of 15 years or so. It also meant... Therefore, that these were young girls, very young. Only rarely might a girl have reached well into her 20s and still be single and living with her parents. Now, second is the matter of this marriage cloth in Hebrew called Simla. In Israelite culture and according to biblical law, the first step towards marriage was for it to be arranged between the father and the potential bridegroom, and then a price was paid. Once the agreement was reached and the money exchanged hands, the couple was officially betrothed, they were engaged. The status of betrothed made the couple, for all practical purposes, married. Betrothal was not extended or serious dating, This was not a time when the parties could reasonably change their mind. To break an engagement required a very good legal reason. Only one thing separated betrothal from official marriage, consummation. Usually a very simple and quick marriage ceremony occurred on that day and then the man took his bride and they had... They had sexual union. Only upon this was now the couple legally married. During the wedding night that the consummation was to occur while the couple lay together upon a clean cloth. In earlier times it was not a cloth like a sheet or a blanket but it was a new and clean undergarment that the new bride wore. Only later did it become usual to have a special cloth used for this purpose. Because its intended use occurred, the cloth or the garment was turned over to some specially selected elder women, and their job was to verify that it was completely clean, it was unsoiled, and most importantly, it was unspotted with anything that could even remotely pass for blood because this marriage cloth was about to become a permanent piece of legal evidence. Because the girl was young and had never had relations, it was expected that some minor amount of bleeding would occur. I don't need to go into all the reasons for this because you know them. The blood smear would be on the clean wedding cloth and voila, we have proof that the girl was a virgin. Ah, but what happened if in the morning it was discovered that there was no blood smear? To the husband of that era, it was de facto proof that his new wife had not remained pure prior to their betrothal. Now the trouble starts. The following morning, if all went as planned, the girl would proudly present the marriage cloth to her mother and father as proof that she'd been a good and faithful daughter. The parents would in turn proudly display the cloth in their home (laughs) to all the well-wishers who came by as proof that an honorable marriage had occurred in their home. Oh, yeah. I mean, today we have wonderful 8 by 10 glossies hung on our walls all right, as reminders of the wedding. But in that day, the parents displayed the marriage cloth as the mar- marriage memento. I told you this gets a little dicey. Well, after a time, this cloth was carefully stored away as a kind of evidentiary document, just in case, such a thing as the particular case that's envisioned here in Deuteronomy 22 actually happens. That explains the need for the elder women to confirm the unstained nature of the cloth. After all, the women full well knew if she was a virgin or not, and, and that she might have prepared a pre cloth for use in this case. At least that was the mindset. The cloth is all the proof that the elders needed. The husband's judged a liar. And his punishment is appropriately severe. First, by definition, his dishonesty and trustworthiness is exposed for the whole city to see. Second, he's to be publicly punished by being Whipped. Next, he's to pay the father a penalty of a hundred silver silver shekels, a very substantial amount of money for that era. And as the coup de grace. not only can the man not divorce this woman now, no matter what happens in the future, he can't ever divorce her. It doesn't matter what she does; he's stuck with her, all right, until the day he dies. <laughs> Now let me add that it was recognized by all that there are a number of circumstances whereupon this wedding night scenario might not quite go the way it was supposed to and there would have been no fault on anybody's part. That is, the smear might not have appeared on the cloth and there are anatomical reasons for that which are well understood and normal. Therefore, we will actually find rabbinical rulings that might require a physical examination upon the bride by elder women so that they can act as witnesses to help determine if there need be cause for alarm well the second case of illustration begins in verse 20 and it's basically the same except that it turns out the husband's allegations are true should the bride be found to have had relations before marriage she's taken to the doorstep of her father's house and there she's executed by stoning not not by her parents but by the community. It's bad enough. I suppose we could argue that this is unfair and too severe, but recall earlier in the previous chapter that a rebellious son was basically dealt with the same way. The primary way a daughter was rebellious in that era was by refusing her father's supervision. Cavorting with men he has not betrothed her to, and thus bringing great dishonor to the whole household. The ultimate girl-child rebellion was to have sexual relations before betrothal. The ultimate boy-child rebellion was to be no account, to be a glutton, a drunkard. Therefore, God's justice is equal, death for both. Again, in both cases, the reason for this terrible price is and it's stated several times in Deuteronomy 22, this is how you will purge evil from Israel. That's why. Now the crime the girl committed is is called behaving as a zana. It it means behaving as 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 a whore, a prostitute. And While we in the West give this act the designation of fornication, and a lot of Bibles translate it that way, in fact that word covers over the point. The very meaning of the act of prostitution is about an illicit physical sexual union. It's all about illicit mixture, an unauthorized union. And all illicit unions are a form of adultery. So while we tend to make a distinction in modern society between fornication and adultery, it's all under the same biblical God principle. It's all part of the seventh commandment. Now, following this is the third example, that of a man committing adultery with a married woman. That's pretty straightforward. If it proves to be true, both are executed. No favoritism here. Okay. The fourth example is contained in verses 23 and 24. It's the case of a betrothed girl who has sex not with the man she's betrothed to, but with another. And again, the penalty for both is death. Because except for the consummation between bride and bridegroom, Under the law, there is almost no difference, remember, between betrothal and marriage. So, the penalty is the same as for the married woman and man because this, once again, is adultery. All keeps coming back to that. Now, there are some caveats in this case brought about by circumstance. See, this one, this first case is, it says the situation occurs in a city. Why does this matter? Cities in ancient times were densely populated. The walls of one house usually were built incorporating the wall of the neighboring house. Water and roads determined as much as anything where a city might be built. So when a suitable place was found, and the availability of water and the security of having several families in one place was important, there a town would grow up. The idea is here, is that an attack upon a girl within a city... It's practically impossible to go unnoticed. An unwilling woman would have cried out and somebody would have heard her. That's the rationale. Maybe to rescue her, maybe simply to be able to later testify that they heard her cry out. But the crying out was an indication that this was a case of rape and not a case of of her choice. Without other evidence to the contrary, That no one heard her cry out means she didn't protest sufficiently. Therefore, she was guilty of being a willing participant. This is adultery. And her life along with a man's is forfeit. The idea here is one of reasonable resistance. No resistance, no excuse. However, as it says in verse 25, when the location of the same kind of crimes out in the countryside, where houses might be a long way apart, and where the girl's screams could possibly never be heard, If she claims she wasn't a willing participant, then her word is taken for it. She's innocent. He's guilty. He'll be executed. She'll be left alone. The final case is of a man who has relations with a girl who is neither married nor betrothed, and so now we see a very interesting shift in the penalty. Death isn't prescribed for either one. The best way to compare this to modern times is that, let's say, an unattached teenage girl living at home has a date with a guy and they decide to have relations. While this is anything but the ideal, and this kind of union is not authorized, it doesn't carry the same weight as for a person who was married, betrothed, or was raped. Two willing, unmarried partners, unbetrothed, have set their courses, however, and they've done wrong. The end result is, according to the law, they must marry. Why? Because by God's rules, such a willing union by a man and a woman indicates marriage. That is marriage. A girl's decided she wants to have the authority of her transferred from her father to her husband. The Lord says that a man who has this kind of union with a woman who is not Otherwise committed to another man has engaged in marriage and now he's responsible for. Therefore, as it says in verse 29, the man must pay, must go to the father and now give him the bride price. It says the price is 50 silver shekels. This is a pretty high price, probably higher than usual not as high as the penalty the husband paid for falsely accusing his new wife of not having been a virgin when they married, but on the other hand, the man in this case has forever taken away this this girl's virgin status. Therefore, there is very little chance that this father could ever marry this girl off in the future to another. And that meant he could never receive money for a bride price. In addition to this man being required to marry the girl, it says he can never have the right to divorce her in the future no, how, no matter how legit, legitimate the case or, or the reason. Uh, there's so much for us to take in from all this. But So let me end this lesson tonight by just pointing out a half a dozen things or so. When we hold up the state of our culture in the light of these laws, We have utterly no grounds to stand on to plead that we ought to be treated differently corporately according to God's justice because we are a so-called Christian nation absolutely brimming with churches and synagogues on every street corner. We are, as they say, guilty as sin. We're as guilty as if we were a nation of atheists. Maybe more so. Because we know the truth. And we often choose to just ignore it. A father has the duty to protect the women under his roof. That's a duty. This isn't some macho ideal or quaint societal demand. This is our role, men, as ordained by the God who created us as males. This is our role. God has put these women under our authority, not as chattel or slaves, but as our responsibility for their best welfare. The sexual conduct of our children is not to be left up to the school system to teach and dispense their progressive and secular humanistic viewpoints. I don't know to what length a mother and a father ought to go. To protect against this, but anything inside the laws of our society needs to be considered. We also need to see that while the illicit sexual behavior that takes place here has its own consequences, Jesus makes it clear that it all begins in our minds. Our bodies are slaves to our minds, not the other way around. Whether it's a girl deciding to treat her body as that of a prostitute or a man deciding to act as a rapist or of two consenting adults engaging in an illicit sexual union, it begins with the thought of it. Therefore, that's why Yeshua says that a man but looking at a woman in lust mean he's already formed the idea of his intentions upon her in his mind and has thus taken the first step, as far as the Lord's concerned, He's already committed adultery. Because that's where it all begins. Now, while we have had the examples of animals yoked together, seeds planted together, two kinds of thread woven together, and the deception of a man disguising himself as a woman, no act of illicit mixture is as serious. None as the act of unlawful sexual union between a human male and female. Paul argued that the physical body of a believer is to be considered as the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, and thus it must be treated accordingly. To violate that temple, us, is to violate God's property. It's to violate and defile his dwelling place. Now we still have a long way to go with Moses' sermon involving human sexuality and illicit mixture because it's, it's such a serious topic, has such far reaching effects. But this closes out chapter 22. Next week we'll start Deuteronomy 23 and it continues the topic.